Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Cameron Brownjohn is the CEO of Federation Asset Management, a private equity investment company focused on three primary buckets, including sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy, real estate for the healthcare, social and education sectors, and growth-style private companies. The conversation goes to sectors and places we haven't covered on the podcast before, and Cameron uses many examples to act as our guide. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Cameron Brownjohn, CEO of Federation Asset Management. Cameron, thanks for taking the time out to to join me on the show today, mate. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, There there are quite a few people that uh, probably operate in equity markets or private investors or maybe even advisors who are more familiar with the equity piece or even the fixed income piece. But as I just said to you off air, we we haven't had anyone who has the the breadth and the depth of expertise uh, in private capital like you have, private companies, infrastructure, those types of things. So I think this is going to be quite a a wide-ranging conversation. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the series, but one of the things that we like to do is, is go back to really just set the scene for our listeners and myself and understand a bit more about who you are where you grew up, the types of people that um, you looked up to, and how you first, I guess, came to interact with money and investing um, as a young fellow. Okay, thank you. I'll try and do my best in answering that question. <laughs> uh, so I, I grew up in the outer suburbs of, of Brisbane. Uh, I uh, progressed into what I'm doing, I guess, by I guess following a, a pretty well-worn path. I studied commerce and law at university did honours in commerce. Uh, I um, was then a member of one of the global investment banking teams uh, for a number of years. And I worked in New York and London and Hong Kong with that investment bank. Uh, And maybe after seven or eight years of advising companies on capital raisings and M&A across many sectors and all of the sectors that are relevant to what I do now at Federation. Uh, The CEO of Australia for that investment bank actually asked me to move across uh, and join the team's principal investing efforts. Um, So I guess I've been doing that ever since. uh, That, um, so I guess the second two thirds of my career, I've been doing that. I'm I'm 44 this year uh, to give people a sense. So I, I guess in my about 30 years old or very early 30s, um, that pivot took place. Uh, and uh, and from there, I guess I have invested uh, through various types of market environments in various countries in all of the sectors that are relevant to federation. Um, mm. And I think somewhere in there, your question was sort of motivations to, mm. to go ahead and, and um, you know, move through investing and maybe even create federation um, and, and really the underlying common factor for me, Owen, in 
my career so far, whether it was on the advisory side in the early days or or in various forms of the investing um, sort of side, the key thing that I've really enjoyed the most has been working with entrepreneurs that have gone out and built a company uh, and um, always knew that I wanted to to do it and have a go. Uh, and it's pretty hard for for people to want to give a 30-year-old um, money to do a complex thing like private equity. Um, but perhaps uh, there's, I figured there'd be a greater chance that they would start to invest with a you know, 40 something that's <laughs> run investment teams and, um, you know, made enough money uh, for, for my clients uh, and also learnt lessons from mistakes that have been made in the past. Um, so, probably a few battle scars to have learnt from. Um, and, uh, and and figured that you know now would be a, a good opportunity for, for for me to take that step. So in September of 2018, myself and a team uh, unplugged uh, from the investment bank that we were working for and plugged in what we were doing for them in into Federation. Uh, and I guess we haven't haven't looked back ever since. Mm. Just before we get to Federation, there's something there that I think would be interesting to our audience is that looking back on your career now as an investment banker, um, how would you describe the lifestyle, the the, the focus that's required um, compared to other aspects of finance? It, it almost seems like a glamorous thing from the outside, but I know having spoken to a few investment bankers, how much hard work it can be. Yeah, I, I've got to tell you, uh, living it as a junior, uh, there's nothing glamorous about it. Uh, <laughs> I would have been averaging over those first few years, 100-hour weeks, uh, and there's 168 hours in a week, so there's not a lot of time for sleep and personal hygiene and the <laughs> like. It's, I, I wouldn't describe, uh, I wouldn't have described the early part of my career as glamorous at all. Now I was living in, you know, the the financial centres of the world, and I was um, working with some incredibly impressive people on some really exciting projects from a experience and knowledge perspective. Um, so I'm pleased I did it. But glamorous would not be one of the first <laughs> top 10 words that I would have attached to, to, to that part of my life. Okay. So um, you mentioned there that um, it was around about 2018, by understanding, you, you said you unplugged from an investment bank that you were working for um, and you'd been in this investment-focused role for quite some time. What was it about the pivot in particular that, that you – that you, you said you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you'd worked with them. What is it within you, I guess, that made you want to go across and start your own business? Was was it more so, I guess, to escape the the, the catch of, of the, the big brother looking over your shoulder? You kind of wanted to express your own investing expertise in a, in a new way, something like that. Each of the each of the team at Federation uh, I've learnt has slightly different answers to this question. My answer is uh, is that. You know, throughout my career, the key thing that um, would have been a common common factor of what I've enjoyed most has been working with people that have built businesses. So entrepreneurs that have have built businesses, whether that's in within companies or whether that's with their own capital, the thing I've enjoyed is working with people that have built businesses. And so I've always, I've always, I suspect, had it in me that I wanted to have a go and leave a mothership and have a go and 
um, try and build a business um, in, um, in a way that uh, myself and my partners would see uh, as the best way to do that. So, so my key motivation in, in leaving, you know, I guess the warm embrace of an investment bank and, you know, a successful investing team has, is, is, is really, is really that. There was no negative push. There was no negative driver to mm. wanting to do it. Um, no, it wasn't frustrated by any constraints or controls on, on us. And in fact, in many ways, we've copied um, a lot of the constraints and disciplines around the way that we invest here that we were doing previously. Um, so, so no, no negative driver, very much just a positive driver to want to go out and, and have a go myself. Mm. What is it about founders that you think and, and young entrepreneurs or even not necessarily young entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs in, in general, what is it about them do you think that makes them different and, and makes you want to work with them? Vision, passion, knowledge. So for people to want to do it and take the risk and take the plunge of doing something slightly different, be it their new shop or otherwise, generally speaking, they would have a, a higher than average degree of knowledge about what it is that they're doing. Um, and, and so each of those factors, you know, vision and pa- passion and, and knowledge, I think would be, um, would be my answer to that question. It's a pretty lethal combination when you think about it. Um, it it's almost a rare person, I guess, that, want, that has all of those three things. Um, okay, so you, you mentioned Federation there, Federation Asset Management's then business. Um, you launched it with some partners. Can you take us through, I guess, the early, the, the origin story of the business, why you set it up and what you wanted to achieve from, from the outset? Federation invests in businesses and assets that meet a social and economic need. Uh, we've got mm. some core competencies within our team, um, and they really relate to renewable energy and sustainable infrastructure. Uh, on the one hand, that would be the first of three areas where we would be strong. The second of the three areas would be Uh, social and education-related real estate, so non-core real estate. We're not rolling up office properties or industrial properties. We're just doing a couple of narrow areas in in social and education real estate that we have background and strength, Uh, and then operating private equity businesses that we also have background and strength in. So we don't know anything in this team really about consumer discretionary products or retail food and so we're not spending any time on those spaces but we do have strengths in healthcare financial institutions parts of technology particularly where they relate to to old world businesses and we're spending far more of our time thinking about those sorts of spaces uh, the people that work in each of those businesses for federation have really deep background and strength of playing in those spaces uh, and have also um, got a really long track record of working with each other as investors in a team. So we have just essentially unplugged what we were doing previously and plugged it into our own place, not um, deciding to do anything necessarily differently 
than what we were mm. doing before. Uh, we feel that if we were going to do that, that would be riskier than what we're doing. So we're just sticking to our netting and behaving the same way as we have as an investment team for nearly a decade now. Mm. I, I've, I've heard people talk about ESG and, and socially responsible investing quite a fair bit. And it, I don't know, it seems to be the topic or the flavor of the year at the moment. But I've seen that you've you've gone back. I've listened to some things that you've done in the past, and and one of the things that you said in the past is that you know we are a profit seeking firm, but we have a mindset that we can make money, and you know and, and make a, a good return for our investors by investing in a, in a socially conscious way. So could you just flesh out, I guess, that philosophy for the business? Why is it important to you, to you in particular, and into the business to invest in a socially conscious way? And do you think it takes anything away from um, the returns that you achieve? So, I guess Maslow's hierarchy of needs for this place is first and foremost um, a focus on the preservation of capital. So, so, all of the work that we'll do when initially considering an investment right through to making that investment and then even monitoring that investment after we've made it, all of our thinking starts with preservation of capital, how to not lose money. Um, the next thing that we would focus on is how to make money. So what's a good risk return? What's the right shape of the investment? Um, how should we um, focus on um, making sure that, that the investment is a, is a good maximization of risk and return for our or maximization of return for a given, given level of risk for our investors? Uh, to the ESG point, we philosophically believe that if we invest into ESG positive sectors um, and if we invest in an ESG savvy way, we are more likely to achieve those two goals of capital preservation and maximising return for a given level of risk. And, you know, we're pleased to see even the academic research is starting to write more and more on these topics. I was saying the other day, I'd, I'd read a, uh, an article in the Journal for Sustainable Finance. I think it was by Gunnar Freed. Uh, and this piece, I think it was relating to ESG and financial performance was the title. And it was an aggregated evidence of 2,000 empirical studies that they'd collected. And they'd found that uh, in 63% of cases, uh, that there was a positive correlation between ESG findings and returns, and that in eight percent of um, of outcomes there was a the opposite, a, a share of I guess negative findings and and the correlation with returns. Or said another way, from this p piece of research that looked across two thousand different empirical studies you are eight times more likely to get positive correlation between ESG factors and returns than you are to have negative correlation between ESG factors and returns. So we don't think investing in a socially conscious way is uh, um, you know, the opposite of driving positive returns. Mm. We think that it, they're highly correlated uh, and it is for that reason that we are, I guess, focused on the sectors that we're focused on uh, and invest and track ESG type topics uh, the way that we do. Mm. I, noticed, I noticed that you have 
uh, quite a lengthy or there's quite a few different uh, documents on your website that describe your your stance towards ESG and and res- investing responsibly. I noticed that you're also signatories of a few different, I guess, bodies and organisations that kind of are trying to push the case for more responsible investing. How does it, for someone that hasn't been through this process and how they can, how investors can think about this, what's the difference or what's the importance of having that, I guess, third party signatory, that the UN PRI, those types of things versus your own internal I guess, documentation on this. Have you found anything from or clients where they've said, you know, I really appreciate that you've gone the extra length and explained how you would approach given situations? Yeah, so I think that the credentialization of the United Nations principle for responsible investing or the local version of that being the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, but both of which we're members of, um, maybe does give that third-party validation to a range of investors. Maybe, however, Owen, I might um, pivot your question a little um, and give people context for what is ESG investing and what does it mean when you think about these sorts of things? Because that there, I think, would be the sorts of things for those third-party organisations that verify someone like us that um, wants to be an ESG investor, not just someone who's greenwashing because they feel they can um, raise more money, perhaps, if um, if Mm. they say they are strong at ESG. Maybe it just gives some sort of sense for the sort of screening factors that Federation, you know, looks through sure. on the ESG side. So on th- th- there would be five key buckets that we would think about more than anything else, um, leaving aside, you know, the sort of generic, is it a fossil fuel thing or does it engage in slavery or, or those sorts of um, very easy um, things to uh, avoid if you're someone like us. The, the five key factors are, one, the customer viewpoint. Are this, you know, there's, a, I guess, very detailed ways that we can think about each of these, but um, for today's forum, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it at a higher level. The first one is the customer viewpoint. So does this business attract customers just because of lower prices or via its ethics? Two, what's its cost base look like? Does it have low packaging costs? Does it have low energy, transport, waste disposal costs? This will talk to the long-term sustainability as a business model. And to my earlier point, on both that point number one and point number two of revenue and cost sort of screening factors, what's the sustainability of this business's cost base? Does it just have to win on price? And does it have a you know lower than average cost base on sort of some key key factors? Three, regulatory. Does it have the support of government but is not reliant on it? Does it have low evidence of fines and penalties in the past, for example? Four, a social purpose. Are people proud to be employees and customers of this business? Five, resource optimization. Does it have sustainable long-term CapEx programs or is it thinking very short-term? Does it have competitive low energy inputs um, or is it thinking you know, short-term? So, mm. so, so to give people a sort of sense for why is it sensible as a for-profit seeking investor 
to think about ESG factors. Maybe I've just given you a sense there of, say, five key screening factors where um, positive ESG characteristics should relate to positive long-term returns and capital preservation for our investors. Uh, And uh, I think we've found now over a protracted period of time of working together that um, we are comfortable to assert that we see a correlation between positive ESG factors and positive returns. Mm. That's very helpful there to, to explain it that way. I'm thinking though, as you go, as you went through these five things, is it um, is it a case that when it when an investment idea gets to your, I guess your your committee, that the analyst or whoever's leading that that idea, um, they have already checked these things for you, or are you using other tools to screen companies? Because I know you do a lot of you know real estate, you do you do private companies. I imagine there's not the the depth or breadth of data that you would get on a publicly listed company for these types of factors. Uh, we do all of our, uh, our all of our analytics in house. Uh, we do have the ability to report uh, on the ESG characteristics and the impacts of our business or our businesses um, post investment. Too, our administrators Apex have that functionality uh, and some of our investors decide whether they want to receive um, that information or not but no to answer to your question is on the way in we we think about all of the analytics whether it's ESG related or frankly any anything else um, we do all of it internally mm. there, there there are a few things here which are around your investment committee I've, I've heard you once describe it as fierce and I, uh-huh. I'm interested to know I'm interested to know um, I guess just the investment process. I mean, we've got three buckets, which we'll get to in just a moment. But what generally takes place? Is it like a, a daily meeting, a weekly meeting? Everyone comes together um, and pitches an idea, and then you know everyone else is just a free for all with questions. Is that how it generally works? I see tends to be on Monday or Tuesday of each week. Mm-hmm. Uh, since uh, since inception in September of 2018, we've had 400 and something. Uh, investment opportunities reviewed by this firm. Uh, our IC process is as a three-stage process. It's as an initial screening uh, mechanism. Then there is a, a second gate where um, we approve an investment to, um, I guess, appoint advisors and spend money due diligence in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the final gate is the final investment decision, You know, the binding writing of a check stage so different words for it but do we spend real time on a thing do we spend money diligencing it do we do it would be the three gates and of the 400 and something investments that the team has sourced since inception uh, 132 i think it is that have now come through the first gate Uh, 22 have passed through the second gate uh, and we've invested six times. So to the fierce word, um, 400 and something down to six um, is a pretty tight filter process with the debate um, at IC being very much a real debate. Um, most of, not all of, three of four of the investment committee have had experience across all of our major asset classes. Um, the fourth being just a real estate expert. So I guess when we're talking about renewable energy ideas, he he relies more on the rest of us. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, fierce but respectful. Um, uh, fierce being it's been difficult to get 
approved through Federation since inception, um, but but certainly respectful and, and diligent and, and analytical would be um, other words that I'd apply to it. Mm. So you would it be fair to say that you rely on some of these domain experts that you have in your team to effectively spend their day as they like and then bring ideas to you? There's no, I guess, no expectation on an idea coming to you, but um, I guess they're, they're continually turning over rocks. Let me give you a sense for um, that in terms of our ability to generate opportunities, understand them, and then the ability for that domain expert to um, full IC when when it when it when it comes through. So the the person that I will pick for this example is Stephen Panitza. Stephen runs our sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy effort. He's fifty six years old. He and I worked together at Macquarie Group, uh, where I ran the principal investing operations in Australia and New Zealand. He ran them for Asia. He was based in Asia for fifteen years before coming home uh, and sitting side by side with me back in headquarters. Uh, however, Stephen uh, worked for a couple of years between Macquarie. Uh, and Federation at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, where he was the chief investment risk officer. So he was across every investment that the CEFC made, billions of dollars of investment into that asset class in the couple of years leading up to, to coming across the Federation. So we would argue that in the things that we're doing, Stephen sees probably everything that there is to do. And everyone in that space in this country in particular knows who he is. Uh, that being said, if Stephen brings a renewable energy or sustainable infrastructure investment to investment committee, um, there is sufficient other expertise on that IC in Stephen's area of expertise that uh, he needs to uh, make sure that his investment opportunity is properly thought through, the data's correct, uh, and it's a sensible idea. For example, Neil Brown, another of the members on the IC, also was at Macquarie with us and himself has invested near on a billion dollars into renewable energy in various jurisdictions in various different ways over the past. He bought distressed debt in Infogen. Uh, off the back of the GFC. He bought hundreds of millions of dollars of tax equity books, which is a nuanced way that renewable energy uh, stations are financed in the United States from sophisticated sellers, in that instance, Citibank and JP Morgan, over the journey. He's looked at a whole range of rooftop solar uh, power stations and the like. Uh, and he himself, before moving across to investing in maybe a decade ago, maybe slightly longer, uh, he uh, he was an investment banker in the energy and infrastructure space servicing clients like AGL. So Stephen's ability to bring a renewable energy idea to IC that does not make sense will be very difficult because Neil knows a lot of things and most everything <laughs> really about, about that sector too. Um, and by you know, using those two as an example, there is a real discipline in this business and some safeguards as to what we've built in as to um, the things that we're looking to make sure that we're of high conviction. It's not just one person's pet project um, that, will, um, that will get approved through, through the federation system. Yeah, I'm looking at this and one thing I often think about, right, is that some firms will talk about how 
I guess, how many people they have in their investment team and the, the years of experience because they have so many people in their investment team. But um, I tend to think that oftentimes it's better to have a, a narrower, I guess, co- more compact group of investment professionals who can who think the same way but also think differently in, in important ways. So do you find with the size of the invest, investment community that that's probably optimum size for you? Yeah, we're happy. Uh, we're happy with four on the IC. When we were when we were creating it, we decided: do we want to have external members on an IC, or internal members on an IC, or a mix? Uh, and we landed on having a fully internalized investment committee because we decided what we're selling our investors is our ability to find investments. Um, to figure them out, to manage them and to exit them, uh, not some, um, I guess, third-party verification tool that we're doing the right thing on the investing side. I say this in the context that we have outsourced all of our back back and middle office, and that includes mm. that we have an independent trustee and responsible entity for the funds that we manage. So, so we've got that natural check and balance in that equity trustees as a third-party responsible entity and trustee uh, governs our trust and makes sure that we stick um, to the knitting of what it is that we're telling investors that we're going to do and that we manage money well, but on the crispness of the investment decision, uh, we consciously decided that that's what our point of difference is and that's what our value add is um, for investors. Um, And so for that reason, we decided to keep a small and internalized investment committee. Does that, does that having that third party trustee, does that make it more transparent for the, for the investors? Yep, it should. It does. Um, They are very much a strong check and balance um, to everything that we do. We have uh, a good and open uh, working relationship with them. We're often on the phone to them. I know that there's various calls today, for example, with equity trustees on, on various things that are that is going on with, with our business and the underlying portfolio. Um, and so, yes, they very much do hold us to account to make sure that we are operating and doing the things that we said that we would do. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing, uh, as a quick advertorial on this uh, outsourcing of, of back and middle mm-hmm. office apex that I mentioned earlier, are our third party administrator. So they assist with KYC, they assist with the fund accounting and the reporting. Um, so again, uh, in terms of making sure what we're telling our investors and the way that we're telling our investors is the sort of things that investors need to be doing. We would argue, or need, need to be seeing rather, we would argue that the combination of equity trustees and Apex allows uh, this investment team to be providing, I guess we would argue, top of class investment skill coupled with top of class governance arrangements um, through dedicated third-party teams that are looking after investors' interests. Hmm. The reason I asked about this is because um, obviously private equities in a portfolio, it tends to be you know that alternative bucket and people think 
um, you know, it's a little bit different. So kind of what, what governance is in place. But I guess um, now we can move to a bit more, something a bit more exciting for our listeners and for you, I'm sure, Cameron, which is talking about the different ways that you invest. And, and we've touched on it there with sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy. Maybe we could, maybe you could, I guess, describe the, the process, but do it through uh, an example. I know one of the companies that fits, or one of the assets that fits in this um, is, is WinLab. Um, and uh, maybe you can maybe you can talk us through that investment and, and how that came to be in the portfolio. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll give you well, – I can talk to WinLab. I'll maybe give um, another example or two as well. I find with these sorts of things for for listeners, um, there's nothing quite like the tangible. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so WinLab is, we think, Australia's best developer of, of wind farms. It's the former CSIRO Wind Science Division, uh, and they have been operating as a commercial enterprise now for a number of years. When we uh, invested into them, they were a listed company. Uh, We saw that the listed market was valuing the value of the existing operations of the business, not its pipeline. And as a developer, we think its pipeline is the most exciting part of the business. So uh, in terms of some metrics, the business's market cap was well below $100 million uh, when we came across it, but its pipeline uh, is across 7.7 gigawatts of wind farms uh, across this country, a number of African nations uh, and the United States as well. 7.7 gigawatts is a lot. It's about $20 billion built value of power stations uh, and it's about seven times the size of Infogen's pipeline. Uh, where we thought that the listed market was not pricing it at all, essentially we feel like we've bought free option over each of those assets in the pipeline. It's about 50 projects there. So, so we're excited um, to try and get our hands on on that opportunity set. Uh, we uh, ended up teaming up with uh, one of Andrew Forrest's uh, portfolio companies called Squadron Energy, uh, and we have uh, taken that business private uh, in recent history. I've had our first board meeting or two, and there's really exciting plans for what we want to do. Uh, with the business. Our plan is to not build out 7.7 gigawatts of power stations straight away uh, because the constraining factor we think is the ability to contract that power forward. One of the key risks with building uh, building wind farms is making sure that you've got revenue certainty and you get revenue certainty by signing long-term power purchasing agreements with someone who will say, I will buy this much power from you uh, into the future at this price. So you know what what you're selling. Uh, and then you once you have certainty around that, you'll know what your cost base is as well. Um, you'll then finance the project and actually build it. Uh, we think the constraining factor is the depth of that power purchasing agreement market. But we do think we should be able to develop out a couple hundred megawatts of of, of power stations per annum into the foreseeable future, such that in three to five years' time, WinLab will move from looking like a developer of wind farms to perhaps more like a tilt or an infogen, which has got a combination of a really strong development book and it sells electricity to the world. Um, so therefore should have you know a more listed market 
um, applicable kind of structure, and we'll think about whether or not whether or not it is that we bring it back to the listed market. So that's our plan. Mm-hmm. Maybe as another example, Sendal, very different example. I'll consciously choose that as a as a different example. We invested in in Sendal of December of 2018. It's an e-commerce logistics business. It moves things from A to B, and it does it without its own trucks and without its own warehouses. It uses computers to link into Australia's logistics network and now North America's logistics network, and it finds where the marginal capacity is in trucks and warehouses, and it buys it in real time, which means it's fast and it's cheap, and it passes those savings through to its customers, and it's typically focused on the SME customer segment, people that are sending a 1,000 parcels a month, for example, and are big, but not big enough to be attracting the big bulk discounts that Australia Post uh, and whatnot um, would provide them. So as a result of being fast and cheap with a good customer service uh, experience, it's growing really quickly. Every month since we've invested in December of 2018, revenues have been up by 50% in on, on PCP. In many months, has it been more than 100% on PCP? And a couple of months ago, it was up 225% on PCP. So a really fast-growing business. Uh, the CEO came to us into our investment uh, and sought um, our support to help them grow uh, both the opportunity set that they had in front of them in Australia, but also a couple of their customers had been asking them to move up to the United States and to grow the business up into the United States. Uh, Those customers were eBay and Shopify. The CEO has relocated to Seattle. There's a team up in North America now doing great things. Uh, We're pleased to say we did give the money um, to support that growth in the business. Uh, In terms of the way that Federation interacts with the business, we're the second largest shareholder. The CEO and founder is the largest. So we don't need to be a control investor. Uh, As much as anything, we try and find a macro opportunity that makes sense and then figure out if this company is the best company in its space to prosecute that opportunity and the management team the best team to prosecute that opportunity. All other things being equal, notwithstanding the WindLab example of a control transaction, we're very happy. And in fact, it's probably our preference to be a minority equity investor. We want to back management teams, not go in and slash costs and change strategies and whatnot. We're not that type of investor. Um, Mm. So Sendel's a good example where I guess we've brought the capital and some expertise that we share in and around the board table and some connectivity in for the business with say, global investors, um, but um, it, you know, in terms of the tweaking of knobs and the running of the business, um, we let them do what, what, what they do best, and it seems to be working so far. How do you go about sourcing these, these deals? Because I imagine there's probably two things in this. Um, the first is that um, there, I imagine there's quite a limited pool here in Australia to find these opportunities, but then it's another thing to try and convince the companies or get I mean, in this instance, they came to you, but um, to get the, the companies that you really want, I imagine they don't always want your money. Is that is that would that be a fair assumption? Uh, so the first part of that question was how do we find investments, mm. uh, and I guess the answer is because we've been doing 
what we've been doing in the subsectors that we've been doing uh, for now approaching 10 years, we've got really ingrained relationships with the companies that may be looking for capital uh, and then the service providers that look after those sorts of companies as well. So a non-trivial part of that 400-odd investments that I spoke of earlier are coming exclusively from internally sourced relationships. Uh, it's also fair to say a non-trivial part would be investment banks and the big accounting firms and law firms um, showing opportunities through to us as well. When that's happening, my bet is more often than not, it's not on an exclusive basis. We would be one mm-hmm. of a number um, of people that, that they would show those opportunities to. For example, we are currently looking at John Lang's renewable energy assets in this country. Uh, Macquarie Group is the sell-side advisor for that process. Uh, We are involved in that process, but it is a process. It is an auction. uh, And um, I'm sure there are others that are also just as hopeful of buying those assets as we are. Um, So Mm -hmm. it is, I guess, a combination of internally sourced uh, relationships and then um, the, the the brokers and investment banking teams that that know that uh, where our strengths are and and would show opportunities um, through to us as well. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a part of the market. This uh, I guess private equity market is uh, it's a part of the market that I find quite exciting, and and I feel like there are more opportunities if you have the right connections and you know where to look as opposed to equity markets where we're all kind of served the same plate and have to pick over it. Uh, how about when it comes to, I guess, disability housing and, and education and real estate? I know this is a big focus for you, um, and I've heard you talk about the opportunity set, particularly here in Australia with uh, disability housing and, I guess, the inadequacies that are, that are in the existing system. Um, can you talk us through that opportunity set for you and the things that you're looking for and how you play a role? The opportunity set for investment into disability housing in this country is large and the Australian government is also making it worth the while of for-profit investors to try and invest into that asset class right now. Let me explain. There is a large number of people living with disability uh, in Uh, in areas of unmet need, young people in nursing homes, by way of example, uh, and in aggregate, the number of these people uh, amount to $11.5 billion of investable opportunity set right now. The Commonwealth Government has dedicated $700 million per annum of the $22 billion per annum National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, for for for-profit operators to build homes for these for these people. And that in the way that we're operating, uh, it's the rent that will be paid for by that by way of that allocation. So, so it's a large and substantially economic opportunity set for people like us. The, the key risk we think is making sure that you're you've got a tenant and that that tenant will stay with you. And we Mm. think that the best way to do that is to partner with the care groups that look after the overwhelming predominance of the tenants and the occupants in in this country. And and so that's what we've been going about and doing. 
we think that and we thought that the best way to do that would be to partner with bodies who have been working with those care groups and governments for that matter over a long period of time. And so that is why Federation has partnered with Social Ventures Australia uh, to make sure that we've got decade-long uh, relationships with the care groups and that we all understand each other and make sure that we are building homes in the right way um, that both care for the occupants but also um, care for our investors um, who are putting their hard-earned capital uh, to risk in, in the way that we're doing things in our disability housing trust. Mm. From from um, some of the um, research I did on you, Cameron, before coming on, on the show, uh, I noticed that you're chairman of the, the Special Olympics Australia. Um, I wondered if, you know, there was, you felt that this was a compelling opportunity from what you've seen elsewhere and you thought this is a real opportunity for us to do, to do good by investors, or to do right by investors, but do good by society as well. Is it, was it, you know, was, can you share anything there with respect to why you saw this opportunity? Yeah, thank you. Special Olympics is the peak body for, uh, the support of those living with intellectual disability in this country. Uh, and it does that uh, and focus on the health and well-being um, for those people and generally uses sport as a tool and a medium um, to allow people to I express themselves. I have been involved with that organisation now for a number of years, and I guess I've been chairman of it for the past three or four years. The... Uh, I, I guess it was therefore obvious to me that uh, there is a large section of the community. There's there's over 600,000 people in Australia living with intellectual disability, for example. There's a large section of the community that an NDIS housing REIT can address um, and that I figured that through the people that I'd met. Some of them have had connections with Special Olympics. Some of them have not. Um, but the people that I've met and the things that I've, the good things that I've seen that they've been doing um, for this, um, for this uh, group of people, um, I knew that if we did this the right way, there was both a very large um, opportunity to um, assist the community and do it in an economic way, um, and also um, to to do, um, I guess, to be doing the right thing by federation and their investors. Mm. It's one of those things where I guess you know we see things. I talked about how you know we wanted to understand more about how your investment philosophy was shaped. It's it's interesting how consciously or subconsciously things can enter our mind, and, and we can see opportunities as investors. And I just thought that was a, a unique link potentially there. Um, as we come to the back end of the show, Cameron, just um, if people want to find out more about you and about the funds and, and the rigs and, and ha so forth, how, where can they go to find out more about you and, and Federation? Not a bad place to start would probably be our website, federationam.com. Mm -hmm. uh, Wonderful. And we'll have all the links in the show notes too. Okay. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, and finally, Cameron, the last question that I always ask my guests is if you could go back and and tell a younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, what might it be? If I was going back to speak to a younger me uh, about uh, lessons learnt, it would be to be patient and to think through 
uh, investments fully and properly before investing. It's not been my experience that um, you miss out on opportunities um, on a time basis, that uh, there is always another day or two or week to think through opportunities. Uh, and it, it's, it's not been my experience that um, these opportunities will fall away um, for, for, um, for the sake of thinking them through. I've learnt that when mistakes have been made, um, you then spend far more time than that incremental time at, mm. at, the, at the outset that you could have spent um, in trying to deal with those problems. So um, I would go back and tell 20-year-old me, be patient, think things through um, before acting. Uh, and I think that would hold 20-year-old me uh, in, 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 in good stead. Whether 20-year-old me would listen to, to, to 40-year-old <laughs> me is a different topic, but um, that would be my advice nonetheless. Fantastic. That's great advice. Cameron, thank you for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. 